situation up in the first 30 seconds that we encounter it and decide whether I'm going to be a part of them and that or not. Um, more often not than not, an either-world worldview is a, actually a gross misrepresentation of the, pro- of the problem, the situation, or the person at hand. How many of you have ever uh, realized uh, through either-or thinking uh, that, you be- that you were actually taught and trained to be afraid of a problem or a person, and then you actually meet the problem in person, find out that it's radically different than you thought it was, and your whole entire mindset changed on it? Yeah, right? Uh, anybody in here ever been to prison? Not, not thrown in jail, but you just ever been to prison and met prisoners? Yeah, you know? Stay away from those people, right? Until you know, uh, Andrew and I uh, were once, w- once in, went and visited a guy who was in jail, and he was in jail for a good reason. And we're in this little room with this guy, uh, which was a, a little bit scary because they locked us in a darn concrete room with this guy. With, and they locked the door behind us. I'm thinking, I looked at Andrew, and he knew what I was thinking instantly. He's, I'm thinking, this guy's going to kill us, and no one's going to come get us. Andrew and I are in there for, we're in there for less than eight minutes with this fellow who is in jail for a good reason, and we begin to minister to him, and after eight minutes you realize that even though he's in jail for a really good reason, that there were factors that led to the good reason that are more complicated than that, and that justice from the law is never going to never going to be served for this guy or the other person. Only Jesus can take care of this. And life will tell you, you've you got to get away from those people. And Jesus is saying, I'd like you to go see those people in jail, the really scary ones who could kill you with their bare hands in a concrete room and no one would come get you. That's it, right there. See, life is more complex and it's nuanced and it's, there's something in there. And we need a good dose of both and in order to see the world more clearly. We need both and in order to see the connecting points with worldviews and opinions that seem rather far apart. See, we're called to partner with God to see the world reconciled. Um, Thirdly, uh, both-end worldview has a place for a mystery. Not only is the world complex, but it's also mysterious. Uh, there are simply things uh, that are happening in the world that are beyond reason and intellect. There are issues that stretch us and leave us with few answers. Um, how many of you have ever pondered at night when you're in bed alone and it's quiet and everyone else in your house is asleep? How many of you have ever thought about why um, bad things happen to really good people? Right? It's, it's called the problem of evil. Uh, you're not going to figure it out. But you do need to deal with it. And, and the only worldview that's going to be able to give you any sort of category or box for why bad things happen to good people is, is a both-and worldview. It, once you go into either or, you're going to be disconnected and you're going to have no place for mystery. Uh, either, either or is, is, is an attempt to always eradicate mystery and offer answers. And when we accept an either or worldview trying to offer answers where the truth is, we're not going to be able to find answers. What we end up becoming is we become these really trite Christians with really pathetic answers to really big problems, and it disgusts everyone. For instance, um, for instance, what about when a, 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 young, a young boy dies and he's only like 12 years old. You ever heard the answers that, and, the, and the things that people say to the parents when someone dies like that? See, the either-or worldview will cause things to come out of your mouth that are ridiculous. Oh, brother, I know it's really hard. God has a plan. Oh, oh don't say that. That's ridiculous. 
God doesn't kill 12-year-old children. But we want to offer an answer because we think there has to be an answer rather than just living with the tension of hot searing pain on one side and God is really good on the other. And how they connect, I have no idea other than they do. And we just leave it at mystery and we just go, you know, God is here. I don't, I don't understand this, but God is here. And the best answer in those, in those situations is nothing. The best answer is actually just your presence, you know. But an either-or worldview will compel you to say things that are foolish. So on one side, we have God is good. And on the other side, we have God is powerful. He's completely and totally good. And he's completely and totally powerful all at the same time. It's both and. And in the middle of that, there's a whole lot of mystery. The currents are moving. Between God is good and God is powerful. Between God is kind and God is able. In between, there's, a, there's this big there's this distance in the middle and the middle there is really mysterious and there's currents and it's almost like weather is happening in the middle there. There, there's, there are huge storms happening between God is good and God is powerful. And, and I'm telling you, 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 you ever watch, the, you ever watch uh, uh, some of that footage of, of planet Earth from outer space and there, see those storms moving? That's, it's God is good and God is powerful and there are currents in between and it's, there's just storms in there and it's mysterious. I don't even understand how it happens, how it works or what's even necessarily going on. But if they connect, we have to hold them together. It's not one or the other, it's both and. Now the good news for us this morning is that we have an incredible example, an incredible living, breathing, and present example of both and. And we couldn't even begin to start a series called Both And without looking at Jesus. You might be asking, why Jesus? Well, you're not going to understand both and, and you're not going to have any grid for understanding the tension until you begin to look at Jesus. Uh, Jesus is fully God and fully human. This is, the, this is the beginning, and the Christian faith is actually both and. Uh, it is embodied, uh, both and is embodied in a person named Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Uh, first thing I want to say about Jesus' divinity and his humanity, uh, I hope that some of us have spent some time considering this. This is one of those things that I'm going to invite us into thinking about and, and meditating on because this is the beginning of adopting a whole new worldview and a whole new heart that can hold the tension on things that seem to be polar opposites, okay? So when it comes to Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity, the first thing you need to understand is Jesus is not 50% God and 50% human for 100% being. That is, not, that is inaccurate. Uh, those, both of those are heretical statements, and we're not going to be those people. <laughs> uh, Jesus is 100% God, 100% God, and he is 100% man all at the same time. Leaning to 200%, how does that happen? I have no idea, but it's true. This is the beginning of holding together a whole new heart and worldview. Um, most of us know that about Jesus, but the trouble is that few of us have ever really considered what it means. Uh, here's what it means. Jesus, I'm just going to, a few statements here. This is what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully human. It means, uh, it means this. It means, number one, that Jesus is what God looks like. I'm just going to say a few things here. Jesus is what God looks like. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. What is God like? God is like Jesus. Uh, to say it another way, God is Christ-like.
we're, we're comfortable with Jesus being God-like. We're unsure that God should be Christ-like. God is Christ-like. This is what it means. God, Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God acts like. Um, Jesus is how God thinks. And Jesus is what God feels. Jesus is the face of God. God is Christ-like. And, at the same time, Jesus is what it looks like to be a person. Jesus is what you and I were born to be. Jesus is the most human human who was ever a human. Jesus is the model for everything. Like, what is, what is, what is a person supposed to be? A person supposed to be like Jesus. Uh, Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. Fully, pr- Jesus was a celebrator. There, there is something in God that likes a party, and we see it in Jesus. Jesus makes 180 gallons of wine for people who already had too much to drink. Jesus is something different than we think he is. Jesus is humanity in the fullness of God's intended splendor. Everybody good so far? Not ruffling any feathers yet? Okay, so now we're going to ruffle some feathers. We need to consider it a bit more deeply. Gospel of Luke opens up with a couple stories. Two miraculous births. John the Baptist and Jesus, cousins. And the circumstances of their birth are incredibly supernatural. Circumstances of their birth are supernatural. Uh, let's just review some of the circumstances. Uh, so uh, Mary is 16, and she's about to get married to Joseph. And right in that whole process... The angel Gabriel comes to her and says, you're going to get pregnant. And Mary's like, me, how? I'm a virgin. And he says, well, the spirit is going to come over you. And so Jesus is conceived uh, in, a, in, in a, there's a sexless concept, conception. I get tongue tied there. A sexless conception made Jesus. I mean, you understand that in order to make people, we need sex. And we're thrilled about that. But Jesus is the result of a sexless conception. The Spirit overshadows His mother. The Spirit overshadows His mother. Mary has an angelic encounter. Not only that, but there was some sort of an astrological star that was sort of out of place. And some pagan astrologers... I love how we've, how we've uh, stained-glassed the, uh, the wise men. Oh, the wise, you know, the wise men. These, uh, these were pagan astrologers. They were occultists. And they saw a star that was out of place in the sky. And they began to... Pagan occultists followed the star to Jesus. It took them two years. And they brought gifts. What? Hello. This story is incredible. Right? Yeah, we think, oh, the wise men. They're just, you know, these holy guys. Yeah, no. Occultists for two years followed a star. And they found Jesus found him they actually found him and they believed that something was up with this guy and they're like who's this guy and 
Well, here's some stuff. We got some amazing stuff for this kid. So we've got like angelic encounters, sexless conception, uh, occultist pagans who are following astrological signs across the sky, finding, they actually found them. They didn't, that's the thing that kills me. They, they didn't just see something and go, wow, that's neat. We should follow it or investigate it. But they actually found Jesus in a time of no garment or GPS. They found him. They found, there's all this supernatural stuff. And then there's, there's a, you guys remember the, the shepherds. They're just hanging out and they're watching their flocks. And it, angelic hosts, heaven, the hosts of heaven, open up and they begin to sing. And I like to imagine that they sang Handel's Messiah. I know that, I know that chronologically that doesn't work, but that's the way I like. I like in God it works. And, but that's what I like to imagine. And can you imagine you're just out there and then, boom, bam, there we are. They come to see Jesus and when they get there, all of this supernatural stuff, all of this amazing thing, you finally get to Jesus and what you got is a baby wrapped in cloths in a manger that smells like pig crap and a couple cows and a woman who is still in pain. Uh, so I've got to ask you a few questions here. Uh, so Jesus, immaculate conception. Everybody believes that, right? Uh, when Mary had the baby, did it hurt her? <laughs> it hurt her. Did Jesus ever pee in his diaper? Did Jesus cry? Did he cry? Was he a fussy baby? The answer, the answer is, is yes. Even though the Christmas carol tells you no, right? <laughs> See, the Christmas carol is actually terrible theology. The Christmas carol, the Christmas carol goes like this. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Crap. I'm telling you. We're, we're never singing this at the vineyard. We're never going to sing it. And here's why. Because, because that, that Christmas carol was written with an either-or, divinity-only mindset that relegates the humanity of Jesus off to a small, insignificant corner, and in doing so, is heretical. And not just because it's heretical, it actually disconnects us from the life of God and the kingdom. This is a big deal. Like, here's the deal. Immaculate conception. When Mary pushed that baby out of her body, it hurt. And when Jesus woke up a couple days later, and his eyes are popping open, and he's nursing at his mom's breast, it hurt her, and he cried, and he peed in his diaper, and he pooped in cloths, and it was a flipping mess. I'm here to tell you. And the whole time, he's God. The whole time he's God the whole time when he's pooping in his diaper and he's crying and his mom's nipple is sore he's God let me just break it out tweet some of that (laughs) tweet some of that got another question for you when Jesus was two or three, maybe three or four years old. Three or four years old, Jesus. Can you imagine God running around about this tall? Like this? When Jesus was four years old, did he wear his mother out? Did he wear her out? The answer is yes. Harder questions now. When Jesus was a little bit older, did he have to learn things or did he just know them because he was 
omniscient and omnipotent. And he's God and he knows everything. When he's five and his dad's like, you know, well, here's how we're going to make this table. You take the planer and you, and you do this. And Jesus is like, no, dad, I already know. Get out of the way. <laughs> well, how do you know? Dad, remember. <laughs> so did Jesus have to learn things or did he already know them because he could just play his God card? Another question. Did Jesus know the Bible or did he have to read it and learn it and memorize it and hide it in his heart? Ever thought about that? Did Jesus just like come fully loaded with all the scriptures? Like two-year-old Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Is that Jesus or did he have to read it, hear it, memorize it, learn it, hide it in his heart? These are important questions, by the way. They sound silly, but they're actually really, really important questions. Yeah, he, had, he, had to, he actually had to learn it. This is crazy. Jesus didn't know the whole Bible. He had to learn it. And can I tell you something even crazier than that? There's a chance, we don't know, but there's a chance when he was 30, he still didn't know the whole Bible. That'll scramble your eggs. Well, no, he definitely knew it all. Maybe not. Doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that he knew it all. Maybe there were maybe there were parts of Ezekiel that he just never got around to memorizing. Maybe he'd read it, but he just, you know, that was awesome. I want to put up a scripture in Luke chapter 2, 41 through 46. This is 12 year old Jesus. I love that the scripture contains some 12-year-old Jesus. I wish we had a little more. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the fe- festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, his parents were turning home. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him along with relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem looking for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. And asking questions. Stop right there. Two things. Uh, number one, we got 12-year-old Jesus. Fully man. Fully God. Imagine this. God's in the temple. And he's asking the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law questions. Why is Jesus asking them questions? Is he just being nice? Is he like playing like the God nice card? wanting to pump them up a little bit? Ask them questions that he already knows? How many of you believe that Jesus is asking rhetorical questions to the teachers of the law here? You know, those questions that aren't really questions, they're really statements. Sometimes people ask me questions, I ask them another question. Is that a question or a statement? How many... What, is Jesus just jerking these guys around? Not only that, he's not just asking them questions, but it says he's listening to them. God's listening to them. God's sitting at their feet and he's listening to them. Shouldn't they be listening to him and asking him questions? I mean, he's God, right? They should. Except what we're seeing here is that the scripture is telling us that there's this progressiveness thing that's happening in Jesus' own life. 
that that he that he didn't come fully loaded in terms of knowing the whole Bible and, and that he had to learn things and he had to memorize things and he had to read things and that even at 12 years old he was still in this process of waking up and becoming aware of who he was I've got another question for you when did Jesus know that he was the Messiah and how did he know We know from Luke chapter 2 that at 12 years old, a few verses later, his parents come and they find him after they've been separated for a day. And they say, man, Jesus, where are you at? And he says to his mom and his dad, he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Really important little line there, because what we see is at 12 years old, Jesus has gotten a revelation that God is his father. Who, who knows? I think it took him from 12 to 30 to get the full revelation. And I actually think that the whole time he's leading the disciples around, uh, right up to and including the time he's in the garden, he's continually getting a progressive revelation of who he is and what his mission is. Because he tells the Father, Hey, Father, if you can take this cup from me, I'd really appreciate it. What, 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 one of the things we're seeing in Jesus is that his entire life he's having to live by faith. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. This is after he's been baptized. And dove comes down and remains. Voice of the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, full of the Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them he was hungry. Don't you love little notes like that in the Scripture? See, the scripture is telling us something about who Jesus is. He's fully God and he's a real person. He gets hungry. Jesus gets hungry. Did you know that even, did you know that if uh, one day when, uh, when everything gets tied back together, we'll have this feast and it's not going to be a fake feast. It's going to be a real feast and Jesus is going to be serving the best wine and there's going to be real food on the table. And it's not going to be fake food. It's not going to be spirit food. It's going to be real food. It's going to be Jeff Ruby's and the table's going to be like five miles long. And if you've never been to Jeff Ruby's, then you need to go because it's the inbreaking of the kingdom. It's in Louisville. It's on 4th Street. It'll cost you about 180 bucks a head. And after it's over, you'll be, you'll be like, why wasn't it 300? They've, I've ripped them off. He gets hungry. This entire account is an incredible mixture of Jesus' divinity and humanity. He's led by the Spirit. He's hungry from fasting. And then look at verse 13, if we can put that up. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left them until an opportune time. Jesus was led by the Spirit, he was hungry from fasting, and then he was tempted by the devil. Fully God, fully human. Jesus was tempted. We, have you ever meditated on the fact that Jesus was tempted? You know what, you know what, you know what temptation means? It means you thought about it. So when the devil comes to Jesus after 40 days of fasting and Jesus is real hungry, it's not, he's not fake hungry and he's not, uh, he's not spirit hungry. It's not like some super spiritual, you know, I'm on a, you know, I'm hungry for God. It's, it, Jesus was hungry and the devil comes to him and says, well, hey, why don't you turn some of those stones into bread? And it, what we see here is that he was tempted. What it means is, is that Jesus thought about it. He thought about it. When the devil said it, he actually thought about it. He was like, you know, hmm. How many of you understand that it's not a sin to be tempted? But that thing 
inside that comes to us sometimes and, and draws us into this place. The very thing the Son of God experienced as well. Most of us in the church have little problem believing that Jesus was God's Son, that Jesus was and is a living part of the Trinity. We, stu- we struggle to believe that Jesus was and is really a person. That's where we really struggle. However, in Jesus' day, the struggle was the exact opposite. You know, the, the thing that you and I struggle with mostly is to believe that Jesus is a man. Really, that he's really a man. The thing in Jesus' day they struggled with, that they, they struggled to believe that he was God. Uh, a couple things. Luke chapter 4, verse 22. This is after Jesus opens the scroll and he reads out of Isaiah. Uh, he says, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. That whole passage. Look at verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And then right after this, they become indignant and they run him out of town. Isn't this Joseph's son? What, what's the scripture telling us? They're, they're struggling to believe that he's God. They're struggling to believe that he's anything more than Joseph's son. Not only that, John chapter 5, verse 18. This is, this is the drama around Jesus' life. For this reason, they all tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the thing that got him. This is the thing. It wasn't Jesus' humanity that got him. It was his godness that got him. And so one of the things that we see is that today we struggle to be able to hold Jesus' humanity in concert with his divinity. But in Jesus' day, they struggled to hold his divinity in concert with his humanity. And one of the things that we should see in all of this is, is that us guys, us human beings, believers, one of the temptations is always going to be to relegate Jesus into either-or category. People have been struggling this, with this for centuries. We're so conditioned to form lines and boundaries. We're so conditioned to rationalize the world based upon either or. And so what we see here is that there's two huge uh, classic heresies uh, in, the, in the church, and they've been around for thousands of years, and they have to do with relegating Jesus into either God or man, but being unable to hold them together. And so the first heresy, it arose about around the, the second century, but it's still around today in nuanced, really subtle forms. But the first heresy is something called docetism. And it's the belief that Jesus was God, but his bodily existence was merely an illusion, a well-played hoax, that Jesus was a phantom. So he's God, he's around, but it's not really Jesus. It's just, it's a phantom. You can't really get your hands on him. You can't really grab hold of him. Uh, people thought they were interacting with a person, but it wasn't. It was, it was God playing this really crafty trick on them, right? And you can understand why people would perhaps lean that way. Heck, Jesus does things that no one can do, right? He raises Lazarus out of the ground. That, uh, human beings don't raise other us- human beings out of the grave. It, it, couldn't have been, it couldn't have been a person. It had to be God. And so we just let go of one side. And then there's another, there's another heresy, um, which is the other side of the ball. And it's something called adoptionism. And it's the belief that Jesus was a great man, a godly man, a really, really, really great godly man, like one of the best ever, but he's just a man. And that at some point, God was sort of impressed with Jesus and adopted him in as his son. Does this make sense? 
And so what we have is this temptation. And it's, it's in the room right now. It's in the room out there. It'll be in the room until Jesus gets back. And it's the temptation to let go of one side of who Jesus is. Either his godness or his manness. And, and one of the things that we cannot do because we don't want to go to either or, we have to hang on to both of them. When you, uh, one of the things that happens is, is when you let go of one side, you end up in heresy. Uh, likewise, we end up in error when we slide into either or thinking. I can promise you this. If you, if you, if you take the logical conclusions of either or thinking to where they naturally want to go, you will end up in error. Both and is the only tension that will keep you in the safe place where the kingdom is. Um, uh, I'd like to say a couple things about these heresies and how either or thinking affects us. Uh, it would actually be easier to accept docetism or a Gnostic Jesus because then you and I are off the hook. Jesus isn't for the, he isn't the model for life. He's a well-played trick, and transformation is as likely as meeting this ghost. See, see, if Jesus isn't a man, then it's the stuff that only God can do, and now I'm not required or even invited in to do the things that only God can do. It's just God's stuff, right? And we're off the hook. Jesus is not the model for life. He can be my Savior, but He's not the model for life. And by the way, He can still be your Savior, but never be your Lord because of this kind of thinking. He's not actually leading me into transformation. On the other side of the ball, it would be a lot easier if we would just live from an adoptionist worldview. Jesus is a really good man. He's a really great man. And all that supernatural stuff was just a myth and certainly not the main point. Jesus is just a Christian form of mythology. Good Christians should just mythologize the Bible, read it looking for a moral rather than a model for life. See, if you let go of, if you let go of Jesus' divinity, then all you're left with is mythology. Jesus didn't really do all that stuff. He was a really good man, and people were so impressed with this really good man that they made up stories about him because they didn't want him to die. He wasn't really resurrected. He, that, was just, that, was just, that was a story that his disciples told because they didn't want it to be over, and it's, everything's just mythologized. And one of the things we should do is we should just read the Bible, and every time we see something supernatural, we should realize that it's just mythology. And not only that, but we should take Jesus' teaching we should mythologize it. We should just look for a moral and forget transformation. We're off the hook. He's not the model for life. See the, see the problem with letting go? If you let go, you, you, you've, you've let go of Jesus. You've just let go of the Son of God. And so you know you're sliding into one of these directions when you have, God, when you have good arguments for not needing faith. When you've got a really good argument for not needing faith, you know you're sliding too far in one of those directions. It takes faith to see Jesus for who he really is. It's take, it takes faith to believe all of it, even those parts which seem to be really far apart from one another. It takes faith not to let go. I want to read you another scripture. John chapter 20, 24 through 29. I want you to look for the both and Jesus here. You're going to see him. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nail marks were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And um, they were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Isn't it cool that the Bible tells us that the doors were locked? And then verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here 
See my hands. Reach out and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. You guys see this? The Bible is telling this, this really great story. So Jesus has appeared. Thomas wasn't there. And he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and unless I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. And the doors are locked. They're locked because the disciples are afraid. Meaning if the doors are locked, no one can come in and Jesus appears inside of a locked room. <laughs> He's God. He's t- only God can appear inside of a locked room. He's walking through walls, y'all. And then when he walks through the walls, he says, Thomas, would you come over here and would you just put your hand on my hand? Put your hand, not on my spirit hand. I want you to put your hand on my real hand. And not on my spirit side. I want you to put your hand in my, in my real side. Go ahead and put your, put your hand in there. Let it go three or four inches deep. Let it go as far as you want to let it go. Now tell me, Thomas, do you believe? Who is Jesus? He's the guy who walks through walls and he's the guy who has scars on his hands that everybody in the room can feel. And in the coming age, when you stand before Jesus and when I stand before Jesus and you reach your hand out and he reaches your hand, his hand out to you, uh, it's going to be a hand with, with nail marks still in there. Jesus still has scars. Why? Because he's a person. He's a person. So the Gospels are telling us in the loudest manner possible that Jesus is both God and man. So what does it all mean? Three things. It means a lot of things. I just had to quit at three. I had to quit at three. The first thing it means this morning is that Jesus is a mystery. And because Jesus is a mystery, life is mysterious. The person that we love and the person that we believe in and the person that we've, that we've given our trust to is a mysterious person. And if Jesus is mysterious, then life is mysterious. Uh, believing in Jesus is mysterious. Uh, the longer you believe, uh, the deeper the mystery goes. And I'm going to tell you some things that probably no pastor has ever told you. Uh, one of the barometers for living the truly spiritual life is becoming more and more accustomed to mystery and questions. I know that you've been told that the longer you follow Jesus and the more that you know God, uh, the more that you're going to get questions answered. And I'm here to tell you it's a lie. The longer you follow Jesus on this earth and the more you you know God on this earth, the more questions you're going to get rather than answers. Uh, You're going to you're going to get every time you get an answer. It's actually going to open. It's it's actually just a hallway with 10,000 doors to more questions. Life is mysterious. One of the things about a both-end worldview is that it's the only container that can hold the the reality. And reality is is that life is mysterious. Jesus is mysterious. He's all the way God, and he's all the way person at the same time. And life is just crazy mysterious. Sometimes we believe that being a Christian, or a good one at least, means having answers. Sometimes we connect having answers equals being a good Christian. I'm here to tell you right now that the more you get to know, the more you realize that you don't know anything at all. One, one barometer for spiritual maturity is realizing that you don't know anything at all. And that the more mature you become in Jesus, the less you're actually going to know. Oh, you'll know some things, and you'll know some things concretely, but it's just open, it's an open door to a hallway with 10,000 doors, and behind them, everyone is another door with 10,000 doors, tons and tons of questions. Questions are actually a part of the process. If 
Faith is the doorway in, and as long as you're breathing oxygen and nitrogen from planet Earth, you'll also be breathing in an atmosphere of mystery. Mature believers are those who know and yet do not know. We know, but we don't know. Mature believers are those who can admit that they don't know. That's the hardest thing, by the way. That's the hardest thing. Uh, I I oftentimes will encounter um, believers in Jesus, and they they can tell you anything in the world, but the one thing they can't tell you is that they don't know. And every time I run into someone who can't admit that they don't know, I know that this is a person who hasn't significantly met the mysterious man, Jesus. You can't put that guy in a box. He will break your box every time. See, God is so pleased to illuminate and reveal, but every bit of illumination takes us into the deeper waters of unknowing. God, he, he loves to reveal and illuminate. And every time he reveals and illuminates, it just takes you into deeper waters of unknowing. I know God, but I, in one way, I don't know him at all. The older you get in Jesus, the more you're going to realize you don't even know God at all. And it's okay. The church suffers from a God we perfectly know. The church in America suffers from a God that we have a handle on. I'm telling you, if you completely know him, and if you've got a complete handle on him, you've got a complete handle and you completely know something, but it isn't God. For, the, for goodness sakes, he's transcendent. He's, he's, in, he's infinite. He, he's the unlimited God of all creation. And when he speaks, worlds happen, like life happens out of his voice. You might know him, but you, I can assure you this, you don't know him. We need to grab a hold of that. Life is mysterious. You're not going to know it all. You're going to actually walk in increasing levels of unknowing. That's what it means to be a a mature believer in Jesus. Um, I had a meeting with a person a couple weeks ago, and they asked me about one of Jesus' parables. And they asked me about what it meant. Um, They asked me about, anybody remember the parable of the shrewd manager? Y'all remember that parable? This person asked me, they said, hey, would you please tell me about the parable of the shrewd manager? And I told this person, oh, I love that parable. And he's like, no, what do you think it means? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you what it means. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not telling you what it means. Why not? I'm confused. Oh, well, because uh, Jesus says that the, the Spirit will guide you in all truth, and you should just trust Jesus and go spend a few days on it. And uh, maybe it might even take you two years, but it's okay. Just I'm not telling you. Well, do you have opinions about it? Yeah, I have lots of opinions about the parable of the shrewd manager, but I'm not telling you any of them. Why? Uh, I, I went home. I went home really happy that day for this person. Here's why. I don't know if you're aware of this, but oftentimes when Jesus was teaching and hanging out with his disciples, he would tell them something and they wouldn't understand. Y'all, y'all remember that? See, part. Part of being Jesus' disciple is being confused and not understanding. And that, that young fellow was a little bit upset because he was confused and was looking for some answers. I went home happy because I knew that I had a real disciple of Jesus on my hands. If, if, you're, if, you're, ever, if you're ever confused and you don't understand, you should be happy. You're a real disciple of Jesus. And he will come to you. It might be tomorrow. It might be six months. It might be in 40 years. It, it, may, not, you may, not, it may not come with the answer for, until after you die. But he will come to you. And if, you, if you're unsure, be so happy. You just made it into being a real disciple of Jesus. The people I'm afraid of are the people who have all the answers and who know every question 
and have it down pat. Those are the people I'm unsure about. But the people who don't, oh my gosh. Good news, you're in good company. Peter, James, and John, right there with you. And they had him in front of him. Hello, come on. Life is mysterious. More scrambling of eggs. The second thing all of this means is this, is that mystery is one of the paths to finding God. How many of you in here would like to find God? Anybody here want to find God? Uh, one, of the, one of the places you can find God is, is by looking around and, and investigating the places where you find no answers. If you want to find God, you should look in the places where you've been heartbroken and disappointed. And if you want to find God, you should look in the dark corners where your questions have pointed you. If you want to find God, you should look into your doubts. Seriously, if you want to find God, you should look into your doubts. God's not afraid of anybody's questions, and He's not afraid of anybody's doubts. And no one is going to be disqualified on the final day because they had doubts. By the way, doubt is something different than unbelief. If you want to find God, look into the mystery. If you want to find God, look into the places where you don't have any answers. If you want to find God, uh, go into your doubts. Begin to investigate the places where you have doubt. Um, Everybody uh, knows Matthew 28. Uh, Great commission, right? Oh, yeah, Jesus is about to leave. Um, It says uh, in Matthew 28 that resurrected Jesus is in front of them, and it says they they worship, but some doubt it. And by the way, he kicked none of those guys off the team for doubting. Mm-hmm. One of the places you find God is you find them in your doubts. Uh, Jeremiah 29 says that if you seek me, you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. And John chapter 16, verse 7 uh, says something really mysterious. If we can put that up. This is Jesus. He says, but very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, I'll come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. How many of you understand this is a mystery? <laughs> Jesus says that it's better that he goes away. How many of you agree that it's better that Jesus is gone? But Jesus says that it's better that he's gone. Does this sound mysterious to you? This is one of the places we can find him. This is the sort of mystery that you can find God in. Hey guys, I know I've been with you and I know everywhere I go there's healing and I know everywhere I go there's more food than you thought we needed and I know everywhere I go uh, dead bodies are getting up and I know everywhere I go there's revelation and, and great teaching but it's actually going to be much, much better for you if I get out of here. <laughs> yeah, one of the places you find God is you find Him in mystery. And right before Jesus leaves the planet in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, if we can put that up, right before He leaves the planet, He tells His disciples to go and make disciples and then I love this this promise. It's the very end of the book. He says, teach them every, to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm, I'm, gonna be, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm going to be with you. I'm leaving, but I'm going to be with you. See, mystery is, a, always a, mystery is not always a path to answers, but it is always a path to God. And some of us would rather have answers than God, but if you'll receive God, you'll eventually get both. Yeah, see, if you will, if you'll let mystery lead you, you'll find God. You may not find an answer, but you will find God. And if you find God, eventually you'll find both. The first thing that he's going to give you is his presence. The first thing he's going to give you probably will not 
be an answer, the first thing he's going to give you is his presence. Jesus doesn't promise answers. He promises presence. Okay? This is massive, huge deal here. Jesus promises presence. He doesn't promise answers. And so when 12-year-old boys die when they shouldn't die, and when really bad things happen, we shouldn't be looking to give answers. We should be looking to bring presence. Hello, come on now. We should be looking to bring presence. Eventually, Jesus is going to answer every single thing. It probably won't be while you and I are living. It probably won't be. We might get a little nugget here or there, and if we do, praise the Lord and thank Him for it. But realize this, the nugget you get is only going to give you more questions than you had before. The real treasure, Jesus is telling us, the real treasure is not answers, it's presence. I'm afraid some people in this room are not getting this. You have got to get this. Answers are not what we're going for. We're going for presence. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. That ain't an answer. What I'm looking for is presence. Presence. Third thing this means. That with the Spirit, there's a third way. I've had this little, I've had this little phrase in my head for the, about the last two years, and it's it's just a little, it's the leading of the Spirit, and um, it has to do with the third way. And I, I have felt for the last two years the Spirit in, inviting me um, into to being the kind of person who can look for a third way. So anytime we're faced with either or, every time that culture or the world or people or circumstances want to push me into an either or decision, I feel the Spirit saying, look for a third way. Jesus is God and He is man. He is all at the same time. And with the Spirit, there is a third way. Um, An either or worldview often blinds us to at least half of what the Spirit is actually up to. See, the Spirit is in both and. And he, he, oftentimes what happens is we get blinded when we accept an either or. We get, we get blinded to about half of what God is up to. And if you get blinded to half, you're going to get confused somewhere along the way. Mark it down. Um, all the while, the Spirit is working in multiple areas simultaneously. Um, so uh, just as an example, right now there's a really big uh, conversation that's happening among church leaders. And it's a huge conversation. And it's... Uh, there are lots of conversations, but this one conversation in particular is on about how church should be done. How should we do church? You know, how should we do church? Should we do mega church or should we do little church? You know, uh, should we do um, should we do attractional church or should we do missional church? Like, you know, the attractional guys are like, man, uh, the lost people don't want to come to your little missional group. It's weird, and uh, we need to do things that bring in the lost. And the missional guys are like. Yeah, you're bringing in people, but you're not making disciples. And so there's all these conversations that are happening. Should we do attractional or should we do missional? Should we be mega or should we be small? Should we be organic or should we be intentional and institutional? And all these, all these conversations are happening. Uh, all the while, the Spirit is saying, yes. <laughs> it's the tr- He's like, yeah, no joke. People are like, some people are like, we should not do mega church. We should just do small church because that's where the relations are. And the Spirit is going, I think we should do both. I, I think we should just, I think we should do both. I, it's both and. 
It's both and. Um, back to that cessationist or continuationist thing. Told you I'd come back to that. Um, define the terms here real quick as we're wrapping up. Cessationism means that you, you, you basically believe that the gifts of the Spirit have ended and they died with the apostles. Continuationist means that you believe they're continuing. Everybody clear on that? And, and uh, theology and Bible scholars and the culture and the world would like to push you into one of those two camps. You're either a cessationist or you're a continuationist. And if you're a cessationist, the one person you never want to meet is a continuationist. And if you're a continuationist, the one person you never want to meet is a cessationist. And I just want to tell you that I'm both. And I know that's going to surprise you. Um, I actually believe that the gifts of the Spirit are going to end one day. There's going to be a time when they cease. In fact, in heaven, no one's going to need the gift of healing. But I'm also a continuationist because I think they're still present and active. It's just an issue of when. See, the Spirit is in both and. I agree with the cessationists. And I agree with the continuationists. It's the third way. See, often the whisper of the Spirit is in the third way. I want you to think about the most difficult social issues that you can imagine right now. The Spirit is whispering to us about a third way. The Spirit is whispering to us about a third way. He's calling us to leave behind protectionist either-or paradigms and get really quiet and listen for the third way. Uh, I want to tell you one way is that the church has needs to start listening for the third way. We have got to hear the Spirit talk to us about the third way when it comes to uh, gays and lesbians and homosexuals. The Spirit is asking us to listen to it the third way. There's a third way here, y'all. It's not either or. I know you think it's either or when it comes to gays and lesbians. I'm here to tell you it is not either or. It's both and. And there's a way for us to bring the Spirit. We're not going to build protectionist walls against people that Jesus loves profoundly. We're not going to do that. And so here at the vineyard, we're listening for the third way. And some every, people in the room are getting really upset. And there's anxiety coming in the room right now. And I want to tell I'm not anxious at all. Um, one of the things that the Spirit has been whispering to us is, is this, is that this community has got to be a place where really diverse people can come and find a place. And by the way, they are. God is in the transformation business, and He's whispering. Think about the most difficult social issues that you can imagine right now. And I, I want you to resist going into an either or, and, and I want you to listen for the third way, because that's where the spirit is. You know, you can say, well, homosexuality is a sin, brother. And you know what? It is in the Bible. I don't believe that's God's, I don't believe that's God's um, intention for anybody's life. And at the same time, those are the very people that Jesus gave his life from. I will not build a theology that takes them out of this room The thing I would like to do is I would like to just let all of Campbellsville know, if you're gay or you're a lesbian, I want to be your pastor. You need to be here. You need to be right here in this room. Right here in this room. It's not either or. I'm not pushing anybody out. We're going to get right in the middle, right where it's most difficult. And by the way, one of the ways that you know that you're living Jesus' kind of life, the really human, spirit-filled life animated by God, uh, you know you're living Jesus' life like that. 
when you don't fit neatly into any category that the world tries to push you into. These categories are thin blankets on a cold night. They are simply not enough. You'll know that you're living Jesus' kind of life when you don't get your comfort from who you're not and what we're against. And when you don't get your identity from who you're not and who you're against. But your comfort comes from your identity being rooted in Jesus Christ who is himself for the whole world. See, this is what either or does. It, it tells you I get my identity from what I'm against and who I'm against. Baloney. We get the only identity and comfort that we get in life is from Jesus Christ, who has himself reconciled the entire world to himself, through himself. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. It's different. And it will cause people on both sides to become uncomfortable and angry at you. And so if you want to live Jesus' kind of both and life, people on both sides, right and left, are going to get really angry with you. You're too, you're too, fleep, you're too gay for the conservatives and you're, and you're too conservative for the gays. Perfect. You're perfect. That's perfect. Perfect. If your life is a comfort and, and a discomfort to everyone around, if you can't be boxed in or hemmed in, you know you've got it right. If some people want to kill you and some people want to make you king, you got it. If nobody wants to make you king, you don't have it. And if nobody's trying to kill you, you don't have it. It's both and. Jesus is the victor who's a victim. Come on. It's totally different. He's the king who was born in a manger. It's totally different. We've got to live from that spot. I'm getting crazy now. So the third way means that we're called to be a comfort and a discomfort. And the third way means that we're called to be a shelter and a shade, along with being a bright burning sun that illuminates and drives out darkness all at the same time. How do you say, I don't know how to be a shade and a sun. I don't either. I just know that's who you're supposed to be. That's who Jesus is. Uh, I find it profound that uh, the world's worst flock to Jesus. Sinners and prostitutes, they loved Jesus. Jesus is the most holy person in the world who's ever lived. They flocked to Jesus. Religious professionals are upset by Jesus. See, true holiness makes a place for the unlovely. And it really makes religious people upset. That's, you're in it. You're in it. And so a little bit of action this morning. I know I've gone too long. Um, few things for us to do this week. Number one, I want you to consider Jesus. And I want, to, I, want you to, I want to invite you to spend a considerable amount of time this week thinking about Jesus as a man and Jesus as God all at the same time. Think about it. You need to think about it. You need to dwell on it. This is part of what it means to be his disciple. Wrestle with this. There's treasure in there. There's treasure we didn't even unlock this morning in there. Um, the second thing I want you to do is I want you to consider your own life. And I want, to, I want you to ask yourself this question. Have you gotten any of your identity from who you're not and what you're against. If you've gotten any of your identity from who you're not and what you're against, repent. Stop it. And then I want you to meditate on one scripture, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, For you died, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. You need to meditate on that. Like, I'm getting my life from Him. I'm hidden in Him. I'm getting my life from Him right now. That's who I am. That's where my identity comes from. That's who I am. Amen?
Amen. Why don't you stand up? I want to pray for you this morning. If you're on the ministry team, come on down.